remember. Uh, we get to thinking about, well, why, why do we worship? Because we remember who God is, amen? And how do we know who God is? Well, through our experience, His faithfulness to us, and through His Word, right? And so let's sing together and worship His great name because we remember His faithfulness to us. And we remember the truth and the foundation of His Word. Let's sing it together. Oh, we will remember. We will remember. We will remember the works of Your hands. We will stop. Never. Leave. 
Help us to, uh, as the song so brilliantly is written, it stops after the word stop. Help us to stop and think and reflect and meditate. Not just rush through this, but stop and really think about your greatness. Really think about your glory. Really think about your faithfulness, about your unfailing word. And Lord, as we think about those things, we are drawn into worship to the one true holy God. We give you praise. And we give you glory today, Lord. We, we ask that we would, you would help us worship you in spirit and in truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, let me call your attention to this connection card. You'll find it in the pew back in front of you. And, uh, you know, the Lord has blessed us with so many uh, guests and visitors uh, during, well, during the, the COVID-19 time, really. Um, and I think we've had more uh, guests uh, per any six-month period than we've had in, in recent memory. And, and so praise the Lord for that. We want to know who you are and how we can minister to you. So please fill this out if you're a first or second time guest. For the rest of us there on the back, there's prayer requests, uh, comments, anything you want us to know as a staff, pastor and staff. And those, um, those prayer requests will be prayed for. So please uh, take advantage of that. Put that in the offering. Once again... The offering is, is uh, collected at the end of the service. We don't pass plates. We, we're, not, we're not into sharing germs, right? And uh, so put that. But, but on the other hand, we're not diminishing the offering. The, the offering is definitely an act of worship. I'm preaching to the choir. You guys know that because your giving has been tremendous this last six months. Uh, but we're, we're not diminishing the act of worship and offering. We're just saying let's not you know, share germs as we go, okay? So please uh, be aware of that. Um, the pastor's going to start us on Ephesians today, and um, we're going to be talking about just the importance of studying God's Word, the importance of the supremacy of God's Word. What is one of the first childhood songs you remember? Okay, the B-I-B-L-E. What's another one? Jesus loves me. Now, we all think of the phrase, Jesus loves me, how do we know Jesus loves me? The Bible tells me so. Let's sing it together. Oh, Jesus loves me, this I
started this the last couple of weeks, and we just invite you to either pray where you are in your pew or use these steps as an altar. You can come forward and, and do that. 
this is a time for prayer for obviously anything on your heart, but especially for just the lost in the world, for our nation as we approach the election, that Christians would take a stand and that uh, God's will would prevail in uh, all our national decisions, and, uh, and certainly also for all those who are affected by the coronavirus. We want to pray for those and their families. So, so let's just take this time to pray. attention to the screens and let's meditate on these words as we close.
word today and just be reminded that we are aware of this freedom aware of these chains being broken because God's word told us so Amen. Take your copy of God's Word and let's look together in Ephesians chapter 1. And when you find Ephesians, I want you to turn to a familiar book to you called the book of Acts. We were there for a long time, right? Today will be an introduction to the book of Ephesians. This morning, I turned the pages in my Bible of the book of Ephesians. And I noticed that front and back, you only have five pages of Scripture. It's only 155 verses. But please don't let its brevity fool you. This is a high-powered book. As a matter of fact, Klein Snodgrass rightly says, pound for pound, Ephesians may well be the most influential document in all of history. It's pretty staggering. One writer says that, and I quote, it is the crown and climax of Pauline theology. Another has said it is the distilled essence of the Christian faith, the most authoritative and consummate compendium of our holy Christian faith. So why study Ephesians? What makes it so influential? It for my sake of looking into it, I think it is the most sublime truth 
laid out in three chapters that you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. And then chapters 4 through 6 are chapters of ethical, practical outworkings of the, of the doctrine you've learned. So I hope you understand that you can't separate doctrine from duty. You can't separate belief from behavior. So what you think about God is going to affect the way you live out your Christian life. Does that make sense? We talk about being orthodox. And that means you are, in what you believe, you are orthodox. But there's another part of that. So we say, well, we want to, we want to focus on orthodoxy. The other side of that is called orthopraxy, right? You've got right belief, and then you've got right living. Well, I think the reason that people would say things like, it is pound for pound the most influential book ever written, is because of that issue. And folks, there's nothing more important in our day than to know what you believe. You can't be a noodleback and a beetle bailey. You have to know what you believe and why. Okay, And then, is there, is there a more important day for us to be salt and light in this world? To live out uh, the doctrine that we know is so vitally important. It's high time for the church to arise and wake up. Again, this book has an incredible, incredible emphasis upon the church. Why is the church such a big deal? Uh, we're going to study these things as we go through. So it provides the theological subject matter. For us to have correct thinking about our God. And correct thinking about God leads to correct living. So not only thinking Christianly, but living Christianly. Another writer says that the book of Ephesians is a mini theological book. With practical questions. uh, Practical answers to the basic questions about the Christian life. Now, to set the stage for this, let me read the first two verses. Of which I will not preach until next Sunday. All right, And then I want to go over to Acts chapter 19. The text is listed for you, verses 8 through 10. There's no way you can understand the book of Ephesians apart from uh, the embryonic stages. Uh, When was the church planted? How did it have a beginning? So we're going to study that this morning as an introduction. But listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, or an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. To the saints. Do you feel like saints this morning? Do you? We're going to unpack that next week. Who are in Ephesus? We have to stop and ask, is this book written to me? Is it written to you? Are you a saint? Who are in Ephesus? And are faithful in Christ Jesus? Are you faithful? Are you a saint? And are you faithful? Grace to you, check out these words, I mean it's packed, grace, peace, mm, huge, grace to you. You know a normal greeting, we may say greetings, but this was a Christocentric greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And make a left turn over to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, 
Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia Minor, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Tony Marita provides a list of questions that the book of Ephesians will address. Just think about this for a moment. We're not necessarily going to go through it like he lines it out, but it's something for us to start and think about. Why do we worship? In chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, we're going to talk about why we worship. What's the reason you come to church? Why worship the Lord? Why do we worship Him? Why do we praise Him? We're going to unpack that. Why should we pray? Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. What makes grace so amazing? I can't wait till we get there. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Who are we in Christ? Our identity. Chapter 2, 11 through 22. Why is the church such a big deal? Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. What should we pray for? Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. How can we be unified as a body of Christ? Chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. How do new people, what do we mean by new people? How do people who have identified with Christ, who have a new identity, the old has passed away, behold, all things become new. How do people who know Christ live? We're going to see that. Chapter 5, 1 through 14. What is God's plan for marriage? Do y'all see how important this book is? Ephesians 5, 15 through 33. How should we parent? Anybody need help with that one? Chapter 6, 1 through 4. How should we view our vocation? How should you view the job that you have? Chapter 6, 5 through 9. How do we fight against our enemy? Chapter 6, 10 through 24. Now, as a preacher, you know what that means to me? I'm excited about preaching those subjects. But what comes with that excitement is called trepidation. Why? Because if I told you I was going to preach a series out of 2 Chronicles, you'd just be glad if I gave you anything to take home with you, right? But you folks, you should have, if you haven't, you should be familiar with what the book of Ephesians teaches. So not only do I have the, uh, the weight of excitement, but the weight of trepidation. Why? Because, folks, this is the holy word of God. This is what God says. You do realize that there are multiple touches when it comes to the church of Ephesus, when it comes to the writing of Scripture. You do realize that Timothy was the pastor of the church of Ephesus. And so when Paul writes First and Second Timothy, he's writing it to Timothy in how the church should function, how he should lead as a leader. And listen to chapter 3, verse 16 of Second Timothy. All Scripture is given by inspiration, or all Scripture is breathed out by God. That's what my text says. It's breathed out by God. What does it say? All Scripture is breathed out by God. And is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Paul is reminding Timothy of the centrality and primacy of the word. And I get that same feeling this morning. When he says all scripture, you know that includes Ephesians, correct? We believe the Bible at this church. Not church fathers. Not anything additional. Only the Bible. 
We believe in Genesis through Revelation. We believe that the Bible alone is sufficient for life and practice. Nothing else. I hope you all understand that as we preach the Bible. That's your pastor's conviction. There is no other truth than given in the Bible. Period. This is God's word. And all truth is God's truth. You get that. But I'm saying for understanding of who God is, for what the word, for life and practice, we have one source, and it is the written word of God. Period. So when I preach the word of God, I preach it as if it's truth, which it is, right? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So I feel that heaviness, okay? Now, we're still in the introduction mode, aren't we? Don't y'all love Christmas time? When I was a kid, I would save the big presents for last. If you knew it was socks in that particular wrapping paper, you didn't want to hold the socks to last. I mean, it's okay, but it's just the way it is. You start with the little things and build your way up. Folks, I've been here four years, and this is no doubt the biggest present under the tree so far. Are you ready for it? The book of Ephesians? It is. It's the big pre- It's the one I would wait to the end to open. There's no question about it. It's a huge package. So we should be ready to look into it. And I have a responsibility to carry the mantle of the preaching of the Word of God. Not because I signed up for it, but because God called me to do it. Okay? So we're going to do that. And we're going to rely upon the awesome Holy Spirit of God to help us in this process. Why? Because it is soaring doctrine. It is sublime truth. But it's also powerful ethical exhortations that we should live out. And again, remember, Paul wrote this from a pastor's heart. If you've ever read Acts 20... It is unbelievable, the heart that Paul had for this church. In chapter 20, verse 36, they're weeping one to another because Paul is going to depart. They will never see him again. He loved this church. So if I'm going to give you a kind of a thematic structure, it would be the focus upon the term in Christ. Prepositions move the world, right? And Paul uses this term in Christ Pretty much more than any term he uses anywhere else in his epistles. What does it mean to be in Christ? Okay? And then not only what does it mean to be in Christ, but how now do we we live since we are in Christ Jesus? And I realize it has a strong emphasis when you get to chapter 3 and 4 on the church. Okay? I get that. But you're not part of the church unless you're in Christ. And that emphasis upon being in Christ is huge. Okay? So this morning, here's what we're going to do. First, we're going to talk about the city of Ephesus. It's important, believe it or not. And then we're going to talk about Paul's ministry in Ephesus, what that looks like. Then we're going to talk about the significance of the Ephesian church in the New Testament and even many years after that. Okay? And then we're going to conclude by looking at some lessons learned from the background of the material. You can follow this outline in your bulletin. Okay, here we go. The city of Ephesus. Uh, It was a commercial and cultural center in the ancient world. That's what Ephesus was. It was on the west coast of Asia Minor. And it was a very thriving city. You've heard of Rome. You've heard of Alexandria. Do you realize that Ephesus was the third largest city in the Roman Empire? That means it was huge. The beginning of the city of Ephesus kind of has a weird historical understanding. And these people actually believe this. They believe that Ephesus was started by Amazons. And not only Amazons, 
But history says they believed they were giant female warriors that actually started Ephesus. This was, you know, folklore, mythology. Uh, this, however, to believe that you were started, that, that your city started, was started by Amazon women, I think that can make a difference on your culture and your social understanding, how you think about things. So, as a Roman city, this city prospered for some 200 years. At the time Paul entered this city, it was most people believe there were 250,000 people who lived there. You understand that that's a good bit larger than Springfield, Missouri. It is. Think about that. No matter when you live or where you live, that's a pretty large city. We can't hardly wrap our minds around the fact that an ancient city would have 250,000 people, but it did. Okay? So politically, it functioned as the Roman capital of the Asia Minor province. Scholars say that it was the center and hub of communication and transportation in all of Asia Minor. You've heard the expression, all roads lead to Rome, lead to Rome. There was actually another expression that was equally as famous, all roads lead from Ephesus. So culturally, not only was it thriving politically, but culturally it was very advanced. Think about this for a moment. It had an amphitheater that would seat 24,000 people. And the ruins are actually, you can still find, 24,000 people. They had incredible amount of medical training. They had a school that trained some of the most famous physicians in the ancient world. It was also famous for gymnasiums. What the Olympics were to the Greeks, the common games, you ever heard of that before? Were for Asia. It was called the Metropolis of Asia. Ephesus was also a huge religious center. Just like Rome, it had a pantheon of gods. However, its chief god was the cult of... Anybody know? You've forgotten Acts already. I'm going to have to start back at chapter 1, verse 1 and preach all the way through. It was the cult of Artemis or Diana. And so this was the predominant cult. Although there were many of them, this is going to be significant when Paul gets there, right? So... Not only was it popular inside of Ephesus as a cult, but Artemis and Diana, same cult together, one name for the same place, two names for the same place. You could actually, anywhere around the Roman Empire, you could find you an amulet or a statue of Diana on it. It had a massive temple there in Ephesus. Uh, They tell us it housed a rather grotesque image of a multi-breasted figure of Artemis. And this supposedly fell from heaven when the Amazon women came. All right? This was the largest structure in the ancient world. It was constructed 100% out of marble. Can you imagine this place? Check out the dimensions of this, right? 220 feet wide, 420 feet deep, and it stood with 127 marble columns that each reached 60 feet high. Danny, that's a big structure, isn't it? No matter who you are, if you're a builder, commercially or uh, residentially, my goodness, what a structure. There is a little little historical gem about the temple. You know, we preached about uh, Daniel and Alexander the Great in around 335 when he lived and, and fought and conquered the world. Did you know that Alexander the Great loved that temple so much that he wanted his name inscribed upon the temple of Artemis? But actually, they rejected his offer. 
even as great as a military person that he was, they said, the only name that's going to be upon this temple is the city of Ephesus. Now, it was uh, this city, not only was there this cult, but magical practices ruled the day. The streets were filled with magicians and sorcerers and charlatans. You could make a trip to Ephesus and you could pick up something called the Ephesian letters. You know what this was? It was kind of like Scrabble. Seriously, you, you got these letters and you could move these letters anywhere you wanted to move these letters. And you could uh, actually get your fortune. You could get the charms and the amulets and you could figure out what was going to go, go on in the future. But also they believed that this Scrabble game with these letters would actually protect you against evil spirits. In this magic, saturated culture, if that wasn't enough, you could lean on astrology. Because this was a big thing in that day. If you could not find what you wanted through the letters of Ephesus, you could lean on astrology. Now, in the midst of this raw pagan culture, there was a Jewish synagogue. Can y'all believe that? There was a synagogue there. Now, we would not consider it very orthodox. Well, how, how do we know that? Because the priest himself had seven sons named Sceva. And he actually was an exorcist himself. So he really wasn't a priest by God at all. He was an exorcist and had seven sons. We learned this in the book of Acts. And so, many of the Jews in that day actually practiced the very witchcraft and magic that God forbid them to do. How do we know this? Because archaeological findings actually found out, or we know from that, that the amulets that were found and the little statues and amulets actually were in Jewish or Hebrew and they were in Ephesus. So they succumbed to the very same thing that was going on around them in the culture. Now, folks, what I've just described to you is the city that Paul went into only equipped with the gospel. And we worry today about what God can do in our country. We don't trust the gospel. What else did Paul have when he went to Ephesus? That's all he had was the word of God and the gospel. The word of God and the gospel. Okay, that was number one. Number two, Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Look at Acts chapter 18, verse 18. Here's Paul's first encounter in Ephesus. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, a sensocre, he had cut his hair, at sensocre he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow, and they came to Ephesus. Here we are, first time. And he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail for Ephesus. So the first time is just a stop by for a moment. That was his exposure. However, when you get to verse 19, or, or chapter 19, chapter 18 is the end of the second missionary journey. Chapter 19 is the beginning of his third missionary journey. And so what Paul is going to do when he arrives back in Ephesus is he's going to do something that was his normal thing to do. He goes straight into the synagogue, which was always what Paul did. He went straight to the hub of religiosity and he began to preach the word. So he remains there longer than any ministry time frame that he ever had. He stayed there a little over three years ministering in Ephesus. 
In Acts chapter 20, verse 31, we're reminded, don't turn, just listen so we can go quickly. Verse 31 says, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give to you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. <clears throat> Paul poured his life into this place, and the Bible reveals to us that he stayed there how long? Three years. So we deal with the city, yes, but then we deal with the ministry that Paul had. And as you go through chapter 19, not to labor it too hard, but as you go through Acts 19, you see the ministry, the dynamics of what happened when Paul was there, how he preached, uh, what his desires were, and the gospel that he gave out. So the the, the first conflict is that there were some disciples of John in chapter 19 that didn't even know the Holy Spirit had come at all. So Paul deals with that. Why? Because we need to be unified in the gospel, don't we? We need to know what we believe about the gospel. And the Bible teaches that if you are in Christ and you've trusted Jesus, in the New Testament it teaches that the Holy Spirit is given to you as a gift immediately upon the time that you trust Christ. So he was trying to get them unified in the gospel. That was the first encounter. An inadequate understanding of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. Beginning in verse 8, that's what we read to start the sermon off. There's this conflict in the synagogue. And guess what? The people didn't want to hear the gospel. Is that familiar today? So he's preaching the gospel. He's doing it day by day. And there's a conflict there. And so after this conflict, Paul just goes and rents him a building. You know, that's what what would probably happen is if the government shut down our church, we'd just go find us another building. Amen? We're not going to stop worshiping, are we? Right? We're not. No. We'll do whatever it takes. We'll go underground. You build an underground church, we'll go under there. Right? So, Paul just goes and rents the school of Tyrannus. This was a place where philosophical meanderings took place. And people would go and give out their philosophical things of the day. But Paul uses it to preach the gospel. And some people believe that he started at 11 a.m. every morning and he did not conclude until 4 p.m. in the afternoon. And folks, he did this for two years every day. Can you imagine this? We complain about coming to church on Sunday. Just one day. But he's doing this every single day. And then notice this amazing statement given to us in the Word of God. That he did this so that all the residents of Asia heard the Word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Folks, can y'all imagine this? You know, it was a port city. That means there was a lot of people coming through here. Can you imagine? Notice how comprehensive. All the residents of Asia heard the Word. That is amazing. Because what happened? Well, people would transition through Ephesus. They would come in and they would hear about this Paul preaching. They would come into the school of Tyrannus. They would hear the word and they'd take it home. And the gospel was flourishing. People were getting saved. And the enemy couldn't stop it. This is, again, the embryonic stages of the start of the early church where I believe that Michael the archangel and archangel and others are protecting the church as the gospel is getting inroads into all the places in the world. What an amazing statement. Paul's own testimony concerning his teaching and ministry in this school are given to us in chapter 20, verse 20. Listen to this. 
how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Verse 27, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Why did y'all hire this preacher? Primarily to preach the word. If you didn't, then you hired me for the wrong reason. Because I've got one responsibility at this church that is number one. And that is to preach the word. And I'm not going to shrink back from preaching the whole counsel of God. If it's written in the word of God, we're going to preach it. Amen? We're going to preach what the word says. So, Paul says this. And, and because of it, he established this beachhead for the gospel. And there are, there's no doubt. Just think about how many churches actually sprung forth from this particular ministry in Ephesus when people took the word back to their places. So in Acts 19, we find that from there, Paul's not content with just being inside of a building. And he goes out into the marketplace. And he begins to preach the word. And he runs headlong into the cult of Artemis. He runs into the cult of magic. And remember this one story in chapter 19? They hear the name of Jesus, these charlatans do, and they're like, you know what? Let's add Jesus to our number of gods that we have because it looks like Jesus can do pretty good things and we can make more money. And so these exorcists, these seven sons of Sceva, pick up on what Paul is saying. And, and as was their practice, they felt, let's just add one more name to the pot that we have of incantations. So they take the name of Jesus. And they attempt to do an exorcism in Jesus' name. And what does the demons do? Well... They say something paraphrased like this. We know Jesus. And we recognize Paul. But we don't know you. And what happens? Supernatural force pounces on them. Strips them naked and sends them off wounded. You think this made the Ephesus news and times? Y'all think this made the paper? Why did God do this? So that the notoriety would go to Jesus and the gospel. That the gospel alone can save souls. So people began to hear what happened when these phonies invoked the name of Jesus. Watch what it says in chapter 19, verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of Jesus was extolled. Isn't that what church is supposed to be about? Isn't it supposed to be about the gospel of Jesus Christ? And that's what happened. So revival hits Ephesus. Here is a city that's thoroughly entrenched in magical practices. And this power display, supernatural thing of demonic activity, actually gives the gospel more publicity and more notoriety. Men and women began to be converted. And the fruit of this, if you read on down through chapter 19, is they take their magical books and they burn them. Hello, church. You know revival has hit a place. When we begin to burn the books that are not godly, right? That have the magical practices. And go ahead and burn your horoscope. Don't act so spiritual and pious. Some of you look at that crazy stuff. And Jeremiah 10 reminds us that you don't do that if you trust God. You trust the God who controls all things. Not karma, not horoscope. I'm meddling now, right? I am, but it's the truth. Here's the deal. They burned whatever connected them to their former life. When they trusted Christ, the Bible says old things are passed away. Don't stop there, right? Behold, all things become new. And once they knew their true identity in Christ, they got rid of those things that connected them to that former way of life. 
Listen to how Luke summarizes it in chapter 19, verse 20. The Bible says, So the word of the Lord continued. Back up. And they counted the value of them and found it to come up to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's how much they burned. Because Jesus got a hold to them. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and mightily prevailed. That's a military term. Paul is going to use a military term, or Luke is, to remind us of the strength and the force of the gospel. Then the next conflict is to the commercialized state religion. Y'all think the gospel can, can take down commercialism uh, and uh, the state religion? You better believe it. So the industry of Artemis and uh, statues and amulets and the letters of Ephesus, do y'all think that it made that city a lot of money? Oh, you better believe it. It was the idol industry. And the silversmiths had their own unions. And they would band together. And it was a thriving industry. But the word of God and the gospel prevailed so mightily that the silversmiths and the idol makers began to feel the effects economically. As a matter of fact, they said, look, if we don't stop this Paul, we're going to lose our money. If we don't hinder the gospel, if we don't stop this teaching of the gospel, then we're toast. And so they cause a riot. And a fellow by the name of Demetrius stands up in Acts chapter 19, verse 26, and listen to what he says. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Woohoo! Did he get it right? I can't believe that this Paul is preaching against our industry. And that these little gods, he says, that are made by hands are not gods at all. You got it right. They're not gods at all. Right? And so he stops. He hurts their ministry. And so there's a riot. Not their ministry. Their lies. Their hypocrisy. He hurts the city economically. So he gets the people all worked up. And they begin to chant. Great is Artemis. Great is Artemis. Paul, according to the text, wants to go out and greet the crowd. He probably wants to go out and preach the gospel the cooler heads prevailed and said, you're not going out there right now. And he don't. He doesn't go. When Paul gives his farewell address to the Ephesians, listen to what he says. Verse 36 of chapter 20. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful. Most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. It was the preaching of the word and the gospel. The teaching of the Bible. That brought the gospel to light in their souls. If you want to stop uh, an economical, uh, religious, uh, heresy, magic, just preach the gospel. Amen? Don't write, your le- don't write your legislator. Preach the gospel. That's how you stop these things. All right, number three, the significance of the Ephesian church. Now, certainly Paul's ministry there resulted in a thriving church. It is highly possible that this may have been the most fruitful ministry and success in his missionary work that Paul ever had. It was established in Acts 19, and not only that be the case, but Ephesians, Ephesus would also be the recipient of this letter, of the book of Ephesians, right? But the church doesn't end in Acts 19. First and Second Timothy are written by Paul to Timothy as he is pastoring the church of Ephesus. And he instructs uh, Timothy how the church should be established, the doctrine you should have, and, and how the church should practice. 
In all likelihood, John, the apostle, wrote three letters from Ephesus. How many books did he write in all? Five. The Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. Most people believe that he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John from Ephesus after he was released from the Isle of Patmos. Then, of course, we have Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The Lord Jesus sends an epistle to the church of Ephesus. Have y'all forgotten about that? It's one of the seven churches. Would you please flip over there? We're getting close to the end, so don't sleep on me. Revelation chapter 2. Stop and consider the content we have in the book of Ephesians. Of doctrine and practice. And think about the ecclesiastical work. The doctrine of the church that we have from from, uh, 1st and 2nd Timothy. Isn't that amazing? We're thinking about the significance of the Ephesian church. And then, of course, we have Revelation chapter 2, 1 through 7. Listen. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works. Does Jesus know our works? I know your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But you've tested those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, uh uh-oh, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So here we go. This was a doctrinally sound church. When we preach uh, through Ephesians 1 especially, you're going to marvel at how amazing this doctrine is. And this church gets this doctrine. It's a thriving church. They're going to endure affliction. They're going to endure persecution. Some 40 years later, the church was still sound. And that's how long it had been since when, from the time that Paul said this and Jesus gave these words. It could have been said that this sound, thriving church had the best commendation of Christ with the exception of this one thing. What does the text say? You have lost your first love. It's a stunning reminder that sound doctrine and practice does not always secure the kind of fervent love for Jesus that we ought to have. Are y'all listening? Even You can be as theologically sound as a gun, but you can be just as empty inside, right? You can be theologically sound, but, but empty on the inside. You, it doesn't create a fervent love for God, and that's what's going on in this text. Ignatius would tell us, a historical writer years ago, that the Apostle John wrote that Ephesus was continuing in its faithfulness to the Lord for things it was famous for. So here was this church that was continuing on. It would end up becoming the host for the council of Ephesus in 431 A.D. Y'all think about this for a moment. For over 400 years, the candlestick was bright. Can y'all imagine that? Now, I know First Baptist uh, Ozark's been here a long time. Not 430-something years. 
And this is amazing to think about. It continued faithfully. It had its problems. It had its deficiencies. But it continued on. Scholars tell us that what happened to the city of Ephesus was that it became malarial because of the coastline. And then the Turks come in and ruin, or, or the Turks came with ruin from Asia. And in the 5th century A.D., the church died with the city. The candlestick that Jesus talked about in Revelation 2 was removed. What an incredible impact a church had like Ephesus. Now for the final part. Lessons from the background. Here we go. The gospel is the power of God into salvation. Does our church believe this? Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed. Say it. Of the God. Have you folks read your Bible? I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. When you study the background, folks, you need to marvel about the power of the gospel to change lives. And that's what we learn about. It is the gospel alone that changes cultures and societies. It is the gospel alone that can push back the tide of wickedness and can overthrow the kingdom of darkness. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do this. I have a close friend of mine who's in his early 60s that we didn't know he was going to survive the coronavirus. No major health complications before, but ended up almost on a ventilator. One of the most godly men I know of, his name is Eddie Dura. He sent me a text this morning. He's feeling a lot better, and he told me this. He said, preach the gospel. It is the only remedy we have. Folks, are y'all listening? The only remedy we have for your soul's peril and the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the only remedy we have. It's the power of God. So nowhere in Acts do we saw, see Paul assembling people and commissioning them to make a coalition to begin to picket against magic and witchcraft in Ephesus. What does he do? He preaches the gospel and it changes hearts. You want to bring down wickedness? Preach Jesus. Because when they come to Christ and identify with him, everything changes. Preach the gospel. Do y'all really believe the gospel can change hearts? Do you really believe what the word of God says? Right? Faith cometh by. Do y'all believe that? Then the dog and pony shows won't do it. It It won't work. Churches today that are putting makeup on the bride to make her as attractive as we can. Why? So we can be relevant. What is it that saves? Relevance or Jesus? What saves? It is the gospel alone that saves souls. Paul didn't depend on the next election cycle to go through before he gave the gospel. Are y'all listening? Folks, I hope you're not putting all your stock in any election. Unless your election is from God. Then you better put all the stock in it. Are you listening? The fact of the matter is, Paul's method was to preach the gospel. No amount of legislation can overthrow an idle ministry. But Jesus can. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So we need to be reminded that our primary responsibility is to preach the gospel. A city can be changed through the power of the gospel. Our business as the people of God needs to be the business of the gospel. It is to be busy making disciples for Christ. And you say, what is it to make a disciple? Well, I think it's right there in the text. All authority has been given to me. Go therefore and... So what does it mean to make disciples? 
at minimum, it means that people identify with Jesus as having all authority. That means he becomes their Lord. That's at minimum, right? They deny self, take up their cross, and follow Jesus. So that's our goal. The gospel is the power of God into salvation. Number two, a good church can decline in its love for Jesus. Can it? Again, some 40 years after Paul left Ephesus and died, Jesus reminds them, this one thing I have against you. Mm. No church in all seven has the commendation about doctrine, about hating evil, about standing for what's right. In other words, they were dotting their theological eyes with precision. And they were crossing their theological T's with precision. Yet Paul says, we have this one thing against you, or Jesus does. Right? Should we have healthy theology at this church? It is my, I believe, that great theology leads to loving God more. The more you know him, the more you're going to love him. J.I. Packer, right? Knowing God. Some of you have said, I'm reading this. So truth is important. We cannot discount truth for the sake of other things. Yet, I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, in light of our zeal for accurate theology and understanding of God's word, we must be mindful that we can drift away and lose our love for God. We can do that. This should be, it should not be a matter of deciding between loving truth and loving God. You ought to do both. We ought to do both. So, again, you can be as theologically straight as a gun barrel, but you can be just as empty on the inside. We don't want this to happen. A full head with a cold heart is a terrible road to go down. All right? Finally, the church of Ephesus was the glorious fruit of Paul's ministry. Think about this, folks. How long did the church last? 400 years. It is remarkable. And this is due not to the power of Paul or Timothy. It's due to the power of God and the Holy Spirit and the Word. That's why it lasted so long. Untold thousands were brought into the kingdom of God because of Paul's ministry in this church. Can you imagine? Again, it's perhaps the most glorious manifestation of Paul's ministry would be the church of Ephesus. But let's conclude by thinking about something. If we could say that the church of Ephesus was perhaps the most fruitful aspects of Paul's ministry, then what can we say about the book of Ephesians? Hello, are y'all listening? That church lasted 400 years. But the word of God written by Paul from the Holy Spirit of God, the book of Ephesus, has lasted two thousand years and I know a lot of people came to faith in Jesus Christ through the church of Ephesus but can you imagine the very first verse that pricked my heart and led to my salvation when I was nine years old are these verses Ephesians 2 8 and 9 for by grace boy that hit me like a ton of bricks we're going to talk about grace next week it's not that God reaches out to the undeserved we all know we're undeserving actually it's the ill deserved We're going to unpack that next week, okay? For by grace are we saved through faith. And that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And a lot of Baptists like to stop there, but we can't. But we are his workmanship. We're his poem. We're his work of art, created into good works. And when was that ordained? Before the foundation of the world. That you should walk in those good works. Praise God. Many of you sitting here, you may have been saved the night you heard an exposition from Ephesians. 
So if we can say that Ephesus, that church, was the fruit of Paul's ministry, what can we say about the book of Ephesians and how many lives have been touched? Are you excited about studying it? You may not be in the habit of praying for your pastor in the realm of preaching the word, but I hope you start. Ask the Lord God to help your pastor preach through Ephesians. And you pray that God would open your mind and heart to the preaching of the word. And God will do in you what he so wonderfully wants to do. Amen. Let's pray. God, you're so good to us, Father. And we thank you for the word. And Lord, Father, I would be in a bad position if I did not acknowledge that there certainly could be people under the sound of my voice that are lost. And God, we are praying just like you did through the church of Ephesus. And just like you did and have done through the book of Ephesians. As we go through this incredible book, may you arrest the attention of your people. And for lost people, Lord God, may you bring them out of death into life. Ephesians chapter 2. We were dead in trespasses. And sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, God, you are rich in mercy, and it may be your divine will to save souls through the exposition of Ephesians. We pray you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I turned myself off, and some of you are thinking, thank goodness you did. I'll be out back to the right as you leave. Uh, if, if the Lord is working in your heart, you don't have to be inside of these walls to be saved. You don't. Okay? There's no magic in walking an aisle. That doesn't save your soul. Jesus saves. All right? So I'll be out here to the right. If God is working in your heart in any way and you'd like to talk to your pastor, I'll be there. God bless you. Amen. On the heels of that request... Let me ask you to do this for me, too. As your worship pastor, please pray that God would give me music that would really supplement what, what, we're, what we're learning and uh, that we would really learn some songs. And maybe they're old songs. Maybe they're new songs. Uh, but songs that would really uh, help us point toward the truth of Ephesians. Okay? Would you, uh, as you pray for Brother Philip, please pray for me, too, on that. And, and I think this song really does that. It reminds us that these ancient words, these holy words of God, that they are true, and they are changing me. They're changing you. But here, boy, this is so key. Either you, you do this or you don't. We have come with open hearts. That's the only way the Word's going to change you. And I, I, I shared this with the orchestra and the praise team this morning. So many areas in Christianity is going wrong today. Because people come with their minds made up, and if you tell me what I want to hear, then I'm with you. Their hearts are not open, folks. I'm just being real, right? We need to come with open hearts and let His ancient word, His holy word, tell the truth. Amen? So let's covenant together to do that. Let's, let's sing this as we go. Ancient words. Ancient words ever true, changing me, changing you. We have come with open hearts, oh, let the ancient words impart. God bless you. Have a great week.